Hello, and welcome to episode 98 of the Cognicast, a podcast by Cognitech Inc. about software and the people who create it. I'm your host, Craig Andera. All right, well, in terms of things coming up in the community, uh, of course, we want to talk about Closure Bridge. There's one coming up in Seattle, April 8th and 9th. This is in 2016. And as always, you can find out more about that event and about all of the Closure Bridge events at their website at www.closurebridge.org. Encourage you to go there, check it out. And I'll remind you again that you can find a donation link on the Closure Bridge uh, website. So encourage you to stop by and, uh, you know, give them whatever you, you can. It's a worthy organization and they could definitely use your help. Um, and then as far as other news, I want to talk to you about Closure West. So, of course, Closure West itself is happening April 15th and 16th. Um, that's also in Seattle. Uh and the website is closurewest.org. Uh, the speaker lineup has been announced. Looks like it's going to be yet another uh, really interesting conference. Um, I think the speaker lineup looks absolutely great. Um, and right before it, there will be a closure training and as well as datomic training. These are two separate courses. Those will be held April 13th and 14th, so immediately before the conference. And you can find out more about the training as well uh, at the conference website. Again, that's closurewest.org. Dot org. So I encourage you to go check that out. Hopefully you'll be able to make it. Um, it's a good conference. Highly recommend you check it out, especially if you're out on the West Coast. But of course, we have people traveling from all over. So um, maybe see you in Seattle. Um, I think that's about it for announcements. So we will go ahead and go on to episode 98 of the Cognicast. Sure. Yeah, let's do it. All right, let's do it. Well, welcome, everybody. Today is Thursday, February 11th in 2016, and this is the Cognicast. And today we are very pleased to welcome author, developer, all-around nice guy, uh, Daniel Higginbotham. Welcome to the show. Yeah, thanks, Craig. It's awesome to be here. Uh, well, we appreciate you taking the time to come today. I'm looking forward to the conversation. Um, before we jump into things probably technical... Um, I, I have a question that I ask all of our guests we start the show with, and it is a question about art. We like to talk about art. Um, specifically, the thing that we like to kick things off with is a question around uh, the guest's experience of art, some experience of art, whatever that happens to be. You know, hey, I like to work with Clay, or oh, I saw a really great movie, or whatever it is. So I did forewarn you, as I usually remember to do with our guests. So I'm wondering what you had a chance to think of and what you'd like to share with us today. Oh, sure, yeah. So... What I thought of was a poem, actually, that had been on my mind, and it's just one of my favorite ones, and occasionally it's just my mind returns to it, and it is The Friend of the Fourth Decade by James Merrill. It's kind of a melancholy poem, I think, but uh, I don't know. It's hard to describe it. It's just like you know, describing music with words. It's kind of almost pointless, but it's a very beautiful poem. I love the language he uses. And uh, I don't know, I suppose I could talk more about it, but the name of it is The Friend of the Fourth Decade, and it's one of my favorites. Are, would, are you prepared to, to read some of it, or all of it, if it's short? Oh, gosh. Well, it's not very short. I could read some of it. It's up to you. Uh, totally fine if you don't. We have lots to talk about. But if you wanted to, it sounds, I don't know, you've, you've made it sound good. So if you wanted to, to actually share some of the words, that'd be great. Sure, sure, sure. Uh, let's see here. Okay, here's one of my favorite parts. And this is uh, the, the friend in the title speaking. And he says, listen, he went on, I have this friend. What's that face for? Do you think I had only one? You are my oldest friend, remember? Well, Carl Heinrich collects stamps. I now spend mornings with a bowl of water in my postcard box. Cards from all over. God, those were the years I never used to throw out anything. Each card then soaks for five minutes while its ink turns to exactly the slow, formal swirls through which a phoenix flies on Chinese silk. These leave the water darker, but still clear. The text unreadable. It's true. Cards from my mother, my great uncle, you. And the used waters deepen the sea's blue. I cannot tell you what this does to me. Scene upon scenes, immersion and emergence, rinsed of the word. The golden lake, 
Moroccan Dancing Boys, the Alps from Interlaken, Fuji, the Andes, Titian's Venus, two mandrels from the Cincinnati Zoo. All that survives the flood, as does a lighter heart than I've had in many a day. Salt lick big as a fist, heart hoard of self one grew up prizing above rubies, to fill it even by a grain dissolved, absolved I mean, recipient with writer, by water wholly from the tap, by air that dries, of having cared and having ceased to care. So that's just a little bit from the middle-ish part of the poem. Oh, that's awesome. <laughs> that's very cool. Very cool. I like the imagery. And I, I mean, I, I haven't read the poem, never encountered, I think, even the poet before. Um, I is So is the, I mean, I, I want to talk about this a little bit. Is this, is it some sort of metaphor for memory? Like I say, this image of, you know, postcards kind of soaking in a bowl of water and kind of diffusing into this bigger thing. It seems almost like a like a metaphor for memory kind of diffusing as you age. I, I, maybe I'm way off. Yeah, I mean, I think so. I think it's, I think that that's part of it. And I think the overall gist of the poem is my, my interpretation of it, my guess of it is that this is perhaps a World War II veteran. This is why maybe it's the fourth decade um, or maybe it's his forties. I'm not sure. Um, but there also, it mentions like uh, him coming home to like parades and stuff. And I think that that's part of it. And it's also just like a, a willful kind of like letting go of your past, you know, and then like what's, what remains then? And in this imagery like that he shares is, you know, these beautiful photos, you know, so um, it's very interesting. And it goes on to, then goes on to, you know, write a couple more times of like his new adventures, you know, and just, so, yeah, I think that part, like memory is part of it. And the narrator um, after the part that I just read, goes on to talk about like he tries the same thing, but you know maybe it's the ink that was used, but the text is still there for him, right? So the inescapability of some things, right, hmm. that you just can't forget. So wow, deep. Yeah. Although I will point out as a computer scientist that uh, technically the uh, World War, I guess World War II started in the fourth decade. The thirties would be the fourth decade, you know, uh, right? Because if you count the, the the first decade is the one that goes up to 10 or however you would come from zero I guess but anyway it's anyway uh because I, I was thinking I'm in my fourth decade I'm like new no, I'm over 40 I'm in my fifth decade <laughs> oh that's so true off by one error I'm yep not... <laughs> one of the two classic problems right <laughs> um well cool that is really awesome I really appreciate you sharing that with me that's very very uh it's beautiful for one thing and, and interesting for another um but I think maybe we will not spend the whole time talking about that poem although I suspect we could and it would be fascinating um, but let's turn to other things. Let's turn to some of the things that we, that we tend to talk about more on the show. Um, uh, and I think maybe, well, let's, let's, let's maybe start with your book. I, I want to talk more about your background and closure in general, but I really can't have you on the show and not, and not talk about your book. Um, and I think I'll just throw it to you, uh, cause I, I will admit right away, I have not read it. I, I would like to, but um, just, I just haven't gotten around to that one yet. So, uh, I've heard really good things from other people, but, uh, maybe you could, you know, talk about it and start starting with the name, of course. Yeah, sure. So the book is Closure for the Brave and True, and it's an introductory book to Closure. So uh, it assumes that you have no functional programming or Lisp or Java experience. So, uh, the approach that I tried to take with the book, oh, it's also free online, by the way, it's like braveclosure.com. And the approach that I tried to take with it was to one be like have maybe like uh, maybe a gentler introduction than some of the resources out there. So, for example, like I came to Closure from Ruby, uh, I know I knew zero Java, and like some of the things I would read would mention things like Java interfaces or whatever. And I was just like, okay, I don't I don't know what that is, so I don't know what this is talking about. So the the book tries to take a gentler approach in that regard. And I also try to make it goofy. Part of, I think my motivation was I had thought of a lot of like dumb ideas over time. And I was like, these are, these make me laugh. So maybe I could put them in a book and maybe it'll make other people laugh. I try to make it, I try to make it fun for people. And it seems like that's been pretty successful. Some people I think that don't necessarily appreciate the, the sense of humor in it. Uh, like this, the very first uh, review on Amazon, this guy was just, he hated, hated it so much. And it's just like the only thing that I got right, in his opinion, was the topic, which was closure. So I was like, okay. So 
it's not for everybody over, but really though, the overwhelming response I've gotten is that people really enjoy it and they think it's really fun and it's, it's fun to keep reading. It's not dry. So that was my goal. Cool. Uh, so I have to ask about the title. I mean, it's a great title, Closure for the Brave and True. Is there a story behind that or you, you just liked it or what's the, what's the deal? Uh, I think it's just kind of a fantasy sounding title. Like my initial, actually, my initial thought on it was like maybe I'd have like a, a kind of fantasy theme going through it. But really the theme that goes through it is probably more just like weird stuff, like monsters, like like vampires and zombies and things like that. But I don't know. It just it just sounded fun to me is the main thing. Cool. Well, it is a fun sounding name. It's certainly eye catching and uh from a purely business perspective, and although maybe this had nothing to do with your objectives, um, I think it's fair to say that if you're going to write a closure book, especially an introductory one these days, you know, you got to differentiate somehow because there are an awful lot of them. So I want to ask whether that was on your mind when you set out to write this, um, you know, the fact that there is such a plethora of intro closure books, and if so, like what your thought process was, you know, that that helped you overcome that or maybe you just didn't care i don't know what was the story there i started writing this back in uh i guess it was 2013 it's like august or so 2013 my thought process around it was so I, I had like an immediate desire to write something which was that i wanted to use closure at work and to do that like i tried to i had to try and convince people that we should use this but it was the folks i worked with are a lot of like ruby programmers and javascript programmers and were kind of like in the same boat as me whereas like i'd been using the language for like a year and a half or something at that point for them it's like felt maybe like kind of a bear to 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 read through some of the existing resources like like i mentioned the the whole java aspect of it i feel really like i don't want to disparage what's out there because i feel like they are good quality resources like chaz emmerich's book i think was the one I just, I loved and thought was was awesome. But part of my motivation was to just, you know, I, I had encountered a lot of, like, well, a few difficulties to learning closure. I was like, well, okay, how can I present this um, perhaps in an easier manner for people and uh, to just get, get people, like, on board more quickly, right? Because, uh, like, for the completely selfish reason that I wanted to use this at work, and so, like, I just thought, like, I could create a couple of resources to get folks on work uh, at work on board with it. And it's like, okay, we can actually start using this. Um, and that actually ended up working, which is awesome. But uh, the, the, the title aspect of it, Closure for the Brave and True, and like whether or not I was trying to differentiate it, I think really it was just, I mean, I started writing it, and I was like, okay, how am I going to write this so that I don't bore myself <laughs> and like not want to keep, you know, like just, it'd be very easy to like not keep writing it because, you know, it's like it wasn't getting paid for it or anything, right? It's a completely voluntary thing. So I just try to make it really silly. And so like Closure for the Brave and True, like now it's got like the, the cover has a, uh, a drawing of like this dwarf with a warhammer. He's crazy looking. He's on a pig, you know? And so like that kind of silliness, I tried to put it in the book probably I guess mainly so that I wouldn't bore myself. Well, that's as good a reason as any. I mean, particularly if you're not being paid to do it. Uh, so how, how does that work, by the way? You, so you wrote this. It looks like it's on uh, uh, available at least on No Starch Press. Mm -hmm. um, what does that process look like? I mean, did I don't I don't have any idea if if this is something where they approached you and said, "Oh, you should publish this through us," or it's it's entirely voluntary or. How does that aspect of it work? I mean, you have a book and you're about to put it out there and you do it this way. So yeah, the book started out online for free. And after I'd written a few chapters, which, you know, looking back now, there's just more like rough drafts of chapters. But, you know, I, I put some stuff out there and people seemed to like it and respond to it. And that made me start thinking like, oh, okay, well, maybe I could sell this. And so I ended up actually putting on LoonPub and that worked out pretty nicely uh, for a while. But then I also... Um, I ended up talking to No Starch because one of my coworkers had uh, his book, his, uh, Ruby Under a Microscope, had that published with No Starch, and he really liked the process. Um, so I actually talked to Prag Prague too, uh, the Pragmatic Programmers. And so with No Starch, the reason why I went with them, uh, well, there were a couple of reasons. One was that they were, you know, I asked, like, after this is published, can I put the final product online for free? That was one of my goals. I wanted to have a... Um, like a full, complete introduction to closure, like a high quality introduction to, uh, to closure online for, for free. And they said yes. And the other aspect uh, was that 
I want to have like a lot of input, uh, a lot of control over the the cover art, and they were cool with that too. Because really, it's just like I said, it was this is it was a, a labor of love. You know, it's not like it. Peop, the common wisdom is that you don't make a ton of money from tech books, and pretty much true, I think, for, for the most part. So for me, it's just like I wanted to be able to really have fun and be like expressive in, in, in this project, you know, do something creative that was fulfilling for me. And No Starch was completely on board with that. And they were just awesome. I'm so glad that I went with them because I think the book is like much higher quality as a result of their editing. Um, their editing process was great. Um, I was just astounded by how great they were. Like some of my other friends had gone with other publishers and you know, talked about being hounded. Like, when are you going to get the next chapter out? You know, we want to, we want you to publish this, you know, in like two months, you know, write an entire book in two months. And no search was fantastic. You know, like every, they're just say, they would just say, you know, take as much time as you need to, you know, this is your thing. Do a great job of it. And it was great. Um, and I feel like it was a really, the results uh, I'm really happy with. And, you know, and the fact that I get to put it, online for free like the result of not just my work but the work of the editors there it's just it's completely awesome so i'm really happy with how things worked out with no starch very very cool i have to ask you about the art by the way you mentioned it um you said you had a lot of input into the cover i pulled up an image of it it's really fun it's uh, like like you said a, a dwarf riding on a a boar, I guess, carrying a war hammer with a lambda engraved on the head. <laughs> it's pretty cool. So it, when you say you had a lot of influence, it, it, are you being modest? Did you, and there's some other if like fun images at the top of the webpage as well. Is this something that you drew or did you work with an artist that you knew or how did that go? I, I did. I worked with an artist that I knew. It was um, my wife. Okay. Yes. <laughs> awesome. No, this is good stuff. It's really fun. I was going to ask, how was that? <laughs> oh, it was it was great. Like uh, it was cool. Like I felt bad for her because I would give her like these really vague ideas of like, like so like one of the th- images at the top of the website is this sock gnome. So I was like, okay, like can you do a a sock gnome, which is a a gnome that steals socks and uses it to like to incubate its babies? And she's like, uh, <laughs> um, okay sure it's like this is for a programming book all right and but she would she would come back with stuff that just really tickled me um like another one of the the drawings at the top of the site is like about the leftmost ones left leftmost one is the ghost of john mccarthy and it just really tickles me um so it was awesome like she, i would tell her like this vague stuff and say like, try to make it funny she'd come back with like the and so the drawing on the cover she did that um and it was so it was great I loved it. Yeah, well, they're very fun looking, as I said multiple times already. It's certainly true, and you people can check them out at braveclosure.com, the website for the book. Uh, by the way, I completely understand how you feel in talking to her, uh, because that's the conversation that I have every time we do an episode. Uh, here, we do we do a cover, and uh, I have nothing to do with it other, other than having a conversation with Michael Parento. Uh, he's the artist, uh, among other things. We've had him on the show before. People might be familiar with him. Anyway, I'll go to him and say, yeah, the guest says they don't really care what's on the cover, um, but they'd like there to be a goat. (laughs) Okay, or or it somehow has to evoke uh, type theory and pizza. (laughs) You know, so I I completely understand what you're saying. It's it's, a, I'm always uh, completely amazed by the output of, um, uh, of people whose creative outlet is is visual right like that's not my i i do feel that programming is um is a creative act mm-hmm. um in in ways that are very similar to someone that uh, paints or draws or whatever um at the same time i can look at that and go well you're doing something different than i am and and what you're doing um is amazing in its own way and that's, that's always cool to see and i think uh i could definitely relate to your experience where <laughs> Hey, I need a sock gnome programming thing. Yeah, it's 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 fun. Cool. Awesome. And you're you're brave for working with your wife because of course um and and I don't mean that as a comment on um on on marriage or anything like that. Just you know, you have a a close personal relationship with somebody and you're you're working with it, with them. It's always uh there's always potential there for you know, the two different relationships to interfere with each other in some way. Yeah, for sure, for sure. Yeah, in this case, it definitely, it definitely worked out okay because I mean, I think 
uh, her attitude about it was like, okay, this is your thing, you know? And, um, you know, she didn't have like a kind of personal stake in it, I guess. Right. So it's just like, I'll just try to do what it is that you want me to do, you know? And even like when I'd come back and be like, oh, this thing, can you adjust it this way? You know, um, sometimes she'd say like, well, uh, not anytime soon because like, <laughs> you know, right. but, but, um, it was really cool. Cause like there was, you know, she got like, okay, this is your thing. And it was like really nice for her to, to do that for me. So, and also, by the way, Michael Parenteau's stuff, I seen some of his other th- stuff on uh, Dribble, I think super cool. Yeah. His design work is, I'm, I'm a big fan. I am too. Yeah. He's great. And I, you know, I, I refer to him as an artist, but, um, uh, I'll wax Rhapsodic from about Michael a little bit. He's not here, but you know, this is a guy who um, does not have any kind of a technical background. But you know, he's learned um, obviously all the technologies related to web design. But you know, he programs in Closure and Closure Script. Oh, wow. He f- uses Git with you know facility. Like he's really, really a very much a multi talented, multi talented guy. So. Dang. I know, and then he produces these covers that I just love. This, this is his covers. Well, that's always one of my favorite parts of every episode. Is yeah, uh, there's a point at which he's like, "Hey, it's done," and I get to I get to see it. That's always neat. Um, uh, so I want to I want to turn to uh, back to the to the book, and maybe more specifically to the genesis of the book, because uh, I'm curious. Uh, you, you said you came from a from a Ruby background, um, and that you had decided to write this book because you know you, there were there was a a path that you took that wasn't being, that wasn't maybe as well trod or at least as well documented as, as some of the others, for instance, you know, like some of the Java stuff. What was your, the order of things here? Like you wrote a book that was helping people through those things. Were you learning some aspects of closure as you were doing that? Or did you learn them first and then go, okay, now that I understand this, I'm ready to pave the path for others. Which, which one of those did it? Or maybe it was something else. Oh yeah. So, you know, actually I think part of it, um, part of it was I had written a few just blog articles on closure and those seemed to get, get like a really positive response. Um, and so, and that's where I started trying to write in like this goofy, goofy style. And so that got a positive response and I would write those articles pretty soon after I learned something. Right. And a lot of, I think some of the, some of the stuff that I wrote about ended up in the book, but actually not all that much, but for the book, um, there were a lot of things that like I had learned by that point, but there was also probably more things that I did not know um, <laughs> and like and just learned them as I wrote the book, which I felt like was an okay way to to go about it, you know because like it's the the difficulties are then like fresh in my mind and just it's easier for me to try to explain to, you know it's like people say, what is that phrase? you can't unring a bell right mm-hmm. like once you once you understand something, um, like it's it's difficult to like really uh, see it from the perspective of someone who doesn't understand it, right? Just something happens in your brain. It's just like something becomes obvious now, and it's hard for it to not be obvious. So um, then that's that was my experience for a lot of writing the book was that I didn't. I mean, I didn't know like for example, like laziness. I didn't know really what that was, you know. Uh, core async. I had no clue what, I mean, I'd, I'd seen some of the videos and stuff, but I was just like, I just don't get it. And in fact, part of what drew me to closure in the first place was, you know, I heard that I had support for concurrency and parallelism and stuff. But, you know, my experience with that coming from Ruby was super limited. And like, I didn't even understand, you know, I, well, I, I didn't even understand what threads were really, you know, like I had kind of a vague idea, but you don't do really multi-threaded programming in Ruby or JavaScript. So like, I didn't have to care about it. You know, so that really there's a vast landscape, uh, a computer science landscape that was unexplored by me. And I got to kind of explore a little bit with, you know, closure as my companion, which made it super fun. And yeah, and then it made its way into the book. I mean, part of, I don't know, that was really part of like what got me so excited about closure in the first place was like, okay, you know, I've been doing Ruby for a long time did some like iOS stuff, which I think everyone is like required to do at some point, you know, like to, which they have to get their programmer credentials revoked. It's like, you need to make an iOS app, you know? So I, I've had, you know, I think a decent amount of experience, but for me, closure is like just opening up this entire new world of stuff that like I'd never, 
um, really had to think about before. And it's, it's all super fascinating, like, like uh, I mentioned, concurrency, parallelism. And the thing about closure, too, is it makes, like, it makes it so easy to deal with that stuff. So you don't have to deal with all these incidental details. Like if now, like, you know, uh, I can see, like, if I want to learn concurrency for, like, C++ or something, right, like, it'd be, like, just gross, like, having to learn all this all this extra stuff with, like, uh, memory management, and you don't have, like, the, the uh, great uh, constructs, like, uh, atoms and refs and things like that. You know, that where you can focus more on the concepts and what you're trying to do than, like, the implementation. Anyway, kind of digressing here. But, so, yeah, the, the main answer to your question is, like, there was definitely a ton that I learned along the way. And it was, like, it was super nice for me because, like, now I feel like I'm pretty decent. I'm okay at closure now, I feel like. There's still a, lot, a whole lot more to learn for me. I think we all feel that way, by the way, <laughs> no matter what <laughs> level you're at. I mean, I work with some of some people who are, you know. Yeah. Yeah. Anyway, and I think I think everybody would say the yeah. same thing, which is, you know, I, I feel like I've achieved a certain level of mastery um, or proficiency at least, but hey, there's always more. So anyway, sorry, didn't mean to interrupt, interrupt you. Go ahead. Very true. Very true. I'm looking, uh, and I think it's always that way, right? Like, what they what do they say? Like, the best way to learn is to teach, and I think writing a book is, especially a book like this one, I, I suspect is um, very much about teaching. Um, and, and, but leads me to ask the question. Um, so I'm, I'm looking at the website, and it, you know, it's it a fun uh, text and everything. But it says you'll you'll you know people are using it to do complex distributed systems and microservices and user interfaces. Um, so when you write a beginner book like this, I think that, that you have a really tough choice to face. Um, and maybe it's not even a choice so much as a spectrum of approaches. Um, mm -hmm. so obviously you use humor as a strategy, which I think is great. I personally love that sort of thing. Um, but then you have to ask yourself, okay, am I going to teach the language or am I going to teach libraries that are in common use or... You know, like what's the kind of the, the narrative of the book or the, the like what is the path? And, um, I, you know, like I said, not having read it, I wonder if you could speak uh, uh, to those of us that haven't about what, what the story of the book is, if you will, what the, you know, how you take people through. Sure, yeah. Um, so the way that I think about it is like when you're learning a programming language, there are four kind of like broad aspects of like uh, the landscape for programming language, right? There's tooling, right? Uh, and so the book uh, uses Emacs, which some people um, don't, don't really like, which <laughs> is odd to me. It's like, okay, should I just not have put a chapter in there about like any tooling? Anyway, um, I can talk a little bit more about that. But yeah, we can come back to that maybe. Yeah, <laughs> yeah so there's tooling. Right there's um, then there's I think the language itself, which I think of as just like the syntax, semantics, uh, data structures, right? Um, then I think there is the artifact aspect, which is the the larger uh, artifact ecosystem of libraries. But then also like how do you publish uh, your own artifacts, things like that, right? Um, and then there's also just like the mindset of the programming language, mm. right? The the philosophy of the programming language. How do you think closure? How do you think Ruby or JavaScript or whatever? Um, and so what the book tries to do is it definitely doesn't, so I'll, I'll start with tooling. Yeah. Like it tries to get you to the point where it at least tries to equip you so that you can with some facility, like write closure and run a closure program. Right. So that includes like uh line again, right. So building a program, running it, um, Emacs, like as an editor, like one option. I also mentioned the various other editors out there, like, uh, uh, uh cursive, you know, Vim, whatever. So. You need to be able to write. You need to be able to write your code, I think, and not something not Notepad, you know, and have some um, be able to do it with some amount of ease, so that that doesn't get in the way of you learning. You know, my approach to that is like ultimately, when you're learning, you want to have a, like a quick feedback feedback cycle, right? You want to try something out, see if it worked or not, you know, or if something like blew up, right? And then uh, be able to like go in, change it, um, see if that fixed it, or see what happens next, right? So. That's the tooling aspect of it. And I try to get people up to speed with like at least some tools. Like, okay, now you can write closure. You don't have to worry about it anymore. Um, you can actually like write the code. You don't have to worry about that part anymore. You can focus on the language, right? So um, the book, in terms of the artifacts, it doesn't really focus on like how to, like on the different libraries that are out there, right? It's definitely out of scope. It does talk a little bit about um, how do you use a different library, 
right? Like what are these, um, when you go to a Git or something and you see like put this in your line profile, what does that mean, right? So it gives you kind of an understanding of kind of the basics of the, like what I call the artifact ecosystem, but it doesn't focus at all on like external libraries. Like there's nothing about how would you build a website or, you know, how, how would you use core matrix or something like that, right? Um, so the book, after introducing the tooling, focuses mostly on like the basics of the language, starting with, you know, how do you just do basic stuff? I mean, the, the third chapter is called do things, right? How do you do things? How do you, how, what's a function? How do you write a function? You know, what are the different data structures, right? So it focuses on, I think it's useful to focus on like just very concrete things, like try typing this thing, you know, see what happens, right? And, you know, build up like at least some level of concrete experience before you start talking about like all the amazing, wonderful, you know, ideas that Clojure has, right? Because I feel like those, when you start talking about these abstract ideas without being able to relate them to concrete experience, and it's just, I, it's just very difficult, I think, to, for, for beginners to make sense of that. So I try to start, I, it assumes that you know some, some programming, like if you use maybe a different uh, programming language before, but I, I try to just relate it back to like some very basic programming experience, right? You know, you want some, you want to apply a function, you want to get a new result, you know, how do you do those things, right? And then from there, it, it starts to go um, farther into the mindset of closure, right? So it'll introduce, uh, I think, one of the next uh, chapters talks about functional programming, right? Um, so it just talks about like, okay, what's a pure function? Things like that, but just relating it back to these, you know, concrete things that you've already done. And then I'll start introducing like perhaps like more functions. Later, I start talking about programming to abstractions, which I think is a more uniquely closure concept. And perhaps, you know, people would be less familiar with it. But, you know, I try to explain that in terms of what's already been explained and people's existing experience. And so the, the, by the end of it, what I want people to understand, I, I want people to be able to write basic closure programs and understand what's happening, you know, uh, for them not to be uh, tripped up by some, some kind of magic of like, okay, uh, like lazy sequences, for example, I mentioned that earlier, right? So, uh, okay, maps return something lazy for some reason. I'm just, I don't know what that is, but I'm just going to go with it for now. I, I don't want people to have that, that, that mindset. I want them to be able to understand, you know, like these, the fundamentals of the language. I, I love that uh, description. I especially like your, um, your breakdown, right? The four areas, you know, and especially that one of them is philosophy mindset. I like that a lot. I think that's key. And, and it leads me to a question I wanted to ask you, which is, I think it's interesting to talk to people, especially people of different backgrounds, uh, yours being, as you said, primarily Ruby. You know, when you come to Clojure, it's very easy for there to be a lot of new things, uh, you know, depending on where you're coming from. And I think you could categorize those new things a bunch of ways, but one way might be, well, it's a Lisp, and maybe one hasn't done Lisp before. It's a functional language, maybe that's new. It's on the JVM, and maybe that's new. For me, all three of those things were newish, although Lisp probably the least, so I'd done a bit with that. Um, and there's probably other dimensions as well. I wonder, with your background, and, and actually also from the perspective of, of teaching people um, via this book, which of those three do you think, if you can pick just one, is the biggest one? Or like, how would you... How would you characterize your experience and you think a, a typical newcomer's experience in those various dimensions, right? In other words, is it easy to teach people the lispiness of it? Is it easy to teach people the mindset? Is it easy to teach people functional, whatever? Like, what's your take on all that? For me, and I've also, I've helped out like with Closure Bridge, for example, and I, I had like a, a little study group at uh, McKinsey where I was working at the time. And so for me, like the Lisp aspect of it, um, I tried. To, I felt like that was the easiest. And I felt like one way to, to to make it easy was to actually not really emphasize it so much, right? So Lisp is awesome. You can do cool stuff like macros, and you know, um, having this prefix notation uh, is super awesome. But I tried to actually not focus on it too much. Just say like, okay, here's here's how you do a thing. It's kind of similar. Like here's how you call a function. This is, it's similar to how you do it in JavaScript this way and how you do it in Ruby. Like, let's not dwell on it too much. There are parentheses. Yeah, but you are, like, you're already a programmer, you know? Like, you've already, 
you've already done the hard part, you know, which is learning how to program, you know, some language and learning how to like understand what a program is, right? So this is just like Lisp is at least, you know, as an introduction to Lisp. Lisp is just another programming language. It just looks a little bit different. Let's not dwell on it. You know, like once you see how to actually, uh, you know, call functions with it, then you sh you're good to go. Like it's not really confusing. And that's actually the experience I had with people. Was like, okay, fine. And also, I found an enclosure bridge too. Uh, when people were completely new to programming, like there's no question of like, oh my god, like what well, what is this plus sign doing at the beginning? This is dumb. What's with all these parentheses? I can't. This is ugly and stupid. You know, like you don't get like all these reactions that some maybe experienced programmers have. It's just like it's you know maybe this is uh, like the, what the, what is it like the arrogant lisp weenie in me talking, but it's <laughs> um, yeah. I mean, it's just it's just another programming language. It's just different, and it's like you know, um, it just looks a little bit different. At least when when you're starting. So the I I felt like the JVM aspect of it is I don't know. I feel like that's kind of like a different category of like things to know about. But um, probably the more difficult aspect definitely was uh, functional programming. It definitely was for me. Uh, one of my first like Reddit posts um, in the Reddit sub uh, sorry the Clojure subreddit um, about Clojure when I started learning it, like I had just learned I had been learning Common Lisp um, thanks to Conrad Barsley's book um, Land of Lisp, which was like super fun and I loved it. Um, I was coming from that, and so when I was learning common lisp, I was like, okay, well, how do I get objects? You know, so there's the common lisp object system. I was like, okay, this is kind of neat. Oh, it's like even it's more objecty than any other object thing I've ever learned. Uh, objects, uh, crazy objects in metaprogramming everywhere. So that was cool. But then I came to Clojure, and I asked, like, okay, well, where? How do I make my uh, my objects? And the folks, like the kind folks in the Clojure subreddit, were like, okay, hold on a second, there, right? Let's let's talk about whether or not you actually need objects, and you know whether or not you actually want to use them. And I was confused and angry, and I said, "No, I love objects. <laughs> you know, like uh, don't take them away from me. How dare you?" It was it was definitely that was definitely the I think the more difficult transition for me and for other folks who like especially coming from Ruby, where like I, I think probably Java too. You know, you you I spent like a whole ton of time investing in like learning about object oriented design patterns and all this stuff and just learn like wait you know hold on like you don't need that stuff your life is a lot easier and simpler if you do it this other way you have to think about it a little bit differently but it's like learning to kind of maybe part of it was just learning to let go of all that time investment i had made you know um but also it's just it was definitely a different different way of thinking syntax i feel like not that hard to pick up but just really, really changing your habits of breaking down a problem. That was, that was the challenge. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think your experience very much matches most other people's, or at least mine, uh, in that it was, the, it was the shift in thinking and less the, much less, much, much less the syntax that was, uh, that was the big deal, which I suppose is unsurprising yeah. <laughs> when you think about people. Yeah. <laughs> All right, so I, I, I want to turn to... Um, the future a little bit so in 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 a form of a couple questions one of which is uh do you feel like you have another book in you and i always feel bad asking authors this question when their publication of their previous book is fairly recent because i know it's an ordeal that for most people takes a little getting over <laughs> but uh do, do you do you think you would well i mean i guess maybe two questions right would you would you do it again and and if so or well whether or not that's true do you have thoughts that you would do it again on a different topic? Yeah, well, Craig, I just, you know, I've been going through all this therapy to deal with last <laughs> Yeah, bring it up again. Um, no, I, I, I've been getting back into writing. I did after I finished the book. I definitely I stopped for a while and uh, just started fiddling around with um, doing more like other programming project ideas that I had. And uh, using, I was like getting into single page apps, Hoplon and Reframe, super fun. Um, but in terms of what's next, it's funny that you say you're talking about the future because I have been writing, which I think, what I think will become kind of a mini ebook just on parallelization and uh, talking about like 
I mean, the goal of it is for people to understand the reducers library, but the larger goal is for people to understand what is parallelization? Why does it matter? And kind of example app that I have for uh, this, this little mini ebook is a palm reading application. So hmm. it's uh, you have the idea with the palm reading application is that you, you take your iPhone and you turn it so that its camera faces your palm and you take a little photo and you get your future uh, told to you. And so the name of the app is I Face Palm. <laughs> you are a master of naming, sir. <laughs> well, thank you. <laughs> names. Names are great. And that is a good one. Yep. Okay. All right. Well, where do I invest, by the way? I want to I wanna be your Y Combinator for this effort. Oh, so I, I have uh, an Ethereum account set up now. Um, uh, Bitcoin, if you don't know, is passe. So, right. <laughs> so um, Ethereum is the future. We're talking about the future. Um, I can share the, the details with you, I think, offline. All right, great. I will not be posting that because this is just something I want to keep to myself for when you make a, a billion dollars with <laughs> iFacePalm. Um, yeah, by the way, as an aside, some of the, uh, some of the people here invented a, an alternate currency based on bacon. They call Baycoin. <laughs> I think that's uh, I wonder if you'll accept Baycoin. Um, that'd be well, good. as a vegetarian, I'd have to decline. So, uh, it might be vegan, just like Bacos are vegan. Uh, I don't know if anybody's aware of that, but Bacos, the little, the little bacon bits you get in like the salt shaker type thing are, are contain no animal products whatsoever. Oh, okay. Well, yeah. I'm sure then. So it's possible that Bitcoin is vegan. I'll look into it. Um, certainly wouldn't want to send you a big pile of, uh, of pig flesh. If that, but we, we can work on the Ethereum thing too. That we're feeling. Um, okay, well, this is cool. So, so you said you're, you know, you're working on this little ebook, um, and, uh, uh, and you've been playing around with, uh, with single-page apps. I'm, I'm curious to hear more about this. Like, what's the, are those two things connected somehow? Or that was just like you were trying different technologies and that was one of them? Oh yeah, they're not connected. Um, okay. So yeah, the, well, for the book, for Closure for the Brave and True, I, I started to have, I have a section on reducers, and I was like, this is, you know, I can't explain this in like, um, in the time that I, I want to finish this book. Like, I don't, it would take too long to to really figure figure this stuff out and explain it. Um, my my kind of my kind of uh, mo, I guess, when it comes to writing, is to like look at like a rich hickey post or like watch one of the talks or something and just sit there and say like okay i don't like this sounds really cool but it's like too too far beyond me so then like i'll sit back and it's like okay like how do i explain this thing not to say that he's like bad at explaining things it's just like he is like um uh th there are often times when like there there'd be like a lot of assumption of knowledge which I, I simply don't have like i didn't know what parallel programming was so of course i don't understand what reducers are and like why they like why they matter. I started to uh, learn about reducers. I thought it was really interesting. I learned a lot about parallel programming like in the process of writing um, the closure for the brave and true. Um, but I just couldn't really fit it in there. But I thought it was like super fascinating stuff. It's like really interesting. And so now like, I, I, I actually gave a talk. Oh, I just found out today that I will be doing a talk on parallelization for Closure West. So it's pretty awesome. Oh, congratulations. Yeah, thanks, yeah. So I'm looking forward to that, and it's just fascinating, but completely separate from the single-page app thing, which is, I don't know, I just have goofy ideas sometimes. I think it's a great sign when, you know, I mean, I don't think it's possible to succeed without having a whole bunch of widely varied, I mean, maybe there are people out there that are like, I want to do this one thing, and I go straight towards it, and they never veer off on the side, but I find that when I talk to our guests who are you know, producing just fascinating work, they've generally got six or seven unrelated things going on <laughs> in their lives. Yeah. So, <laughs> um, and so speaking of like the future and everything, you have recently um, shifted gears a bit career wise. Isn't that right? Yes. Yeah, that's true. Um, yeah. So back in, I think it was April last year, uh, I, I had been working at McKinsey and company, the uh, consulting company for about five and a half years and decided to quit and do nothing for a while um, or just like, not, do nothing that paid me anything anyway. Mm -hmm. um, uh, just to, I don't know, I just felt like I had a chance to do that, and so I wanted to take it. It was nice working at McKinsey, but I just wanted to say, what would it be like to not work? What would that be like? It turns out that it was pretty awesome. So. <laughs> <laughs> I'm glad to hear that. I'm glad to hear that. Yeah. Yeah. I don't know if many people would uh, have, like, you know, suspect that, but yeah, it was great. <laughs> and so during that time, it was, I don't know, like I did yoga and I to kind of 
I feel like I I had a, a lot of experience with with this one pose called programmer's pose for most of my life. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I'm familiar and it yeah, I'm still getting over it, but frankly. Anyway, go ahead. Yeah, well yeah, it's like and it's so I I started doing yoga to to kind of help with that and that was really cool. I really enjoyed it. Uh, I finished my book. Um, I worked on some other stuff. I did like, I started to learn OM, um, not OM next, OM current or OM now. Or I'm not sure what it's called. I think it's. I think we call OM heritage is the, yeah, no, I'm kidding. Anyway. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> I like that. I think that's what it should be. Um, but yeah, so I was, you know, that was before like, there was even a whisper, I think of OM next. So your path was through, you know, this period of uh, reflection, I think it's fair to say and exploration. Um, so where did it land you? So right now I'm working at AdZerk. I'm working there part-time, two days a week. That's mostly so I can focus on, I mean, I work at AdZerk because the people there are awesome. Alan mm -hmm. Dipert, uh, Misha Niskin, the guys behind mm -hmm. Boot and Hoplon. Um, Alan, by the way, is the person who got me introduced to Clojure, and that is a fun story, so I think I'll share that. Okay. Please. Okay, cool. So um, I think back in like 2012 or 2013 or something, I was uh, working at McKinsey, and I've been using Common Lisp for a while. And um, uh, I went to their New York office and for like this you know, quarterly developer day thing. And we had a, a guest speaker named Alan Dipert. Um, I didn't know who he was or anything, but he talked about this language called Clojure. And I was like, oh my God, this is a lisp. This is really cool. And he, would talk, he started talking about it more. I was like, wow, this looks way easier to use than common lisp. Like it's a lot less verbose and um, I can use JVM stuff so I can actually be productive with it. With, at least for what I was trying to do, I was trying to make this kind of online game, which never went anywhere, but it, it just looks super fascinating. And Alan, as you know, is this like very funny and entertaining speaker. Uh, so it got me like, really intrigued. And about six months or so later, I think I ended up moving to Durham and maybe it was like nine months. Anyway, I moved to Durham and I went to a closure meetup and uh i didn't i didn't realize it then but like alan was um the organizer i didn't i didn't recognize him anymore i guess like he had shaved since then or something <laughs> and <laughs> uh but he asked like okay is anyone like new to closure like uh or like you know this is your first meetup and i was like yeah it's mine he's like okay well how'd you get into closure i was like well um this guy gave a talk back in uh new york a while back in mckinsey and um, well, actually, I didn't say where it was because, um, like, McKinsey, Coast, McKinsey uh, folks are really cagey. It's like I, you know, where I worked. And that's how I got interested in it. And he's like, well, where was it? I was like, oh, it was New York City. And he was like, um, what was the name of the company? I was like, it's McKinsey. And um, he was like, I, I was that guy. <laughs> like, oh, my God. Yeah. Um, but anyway, now I get to work with him. He was a technical reviewer for the book, and it was just it was awesome. So. Alan's great. I mean, I, he and I used to work together a lot when he was at Relevance and uh, uh, really enjoy him. He's been a guest on the show multiple times. And I suspect you are far from alone in being uh, the person who saw him speak about closure and decided that it must be a good idea. He's a very excellent speaker, very, very convincing, and obviously um, a deep thinker. The work that he and Misha have, have done, uh, really good stuff. Uh, you know, Boot Hoplon and all the rest of the things that they've come up with are super interesting. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Super happy I get to work with them. And so it's like, it's two days a week and the rest of the time it's, um, you know, writing. And actually I'm, I'm working on a couple programming projects. I'm working on a, a hybrid, a kind of closure, like closure only job board, but then also a place where people can post uh, their open source projects. I, you know, I've been Noticing more people asking, like, how can I, you know, get involved or do something? So I think that that would be a nice resource for the community. The job board would be pay. The open source part would not be because that would be terrible. Um. <laughs> <laughs> would be a little odd for yeah. sure. So I have a question for you. So I, this is something that I think, um, you know, we have guests on a, a lot, and I, they're all very humble people despite their accomplishments. And I think they're hesitant to to self-promote, but I, I have to ask you, are you, it sounds like you have a few days a week where maybe you could take on, are you looking for work? And like, should people feel free to contact you for a contract? Oh, that's very kind of you to ask, but uh, no, not right now. Not, yeah. Okay. I'm good. <laughs> awesome. No, that's fantastic. I mean, uh, I'm sure people would greatly benefit from your assistance, but uh, it sounds like you've gotten yourself to a wonderful place. So I, you know, kudos to you, sir. 
Well, cool. Well, so we've covered, you know, sort of past, present, and future. Um, we probably should start uh, winding down a little bit so we can both get back to the things that we need to do that aren't these enjoyable conversations. But um, before we before we do wrap up, I want to make sure that I give you a chance to talk about anything that we didn't get to today. If you have anything in mind you'd like our listeners to be aware of or you'd like to share, that'd be great before we get to our final question. Hmm, there was like a little bit I wanted to talk about something that's been interesting to me a lot. It's like uh, nonviolent communication. And this is a completely different subject. It's really non-technical. Oh, please. Let's let's talk about it. Yeah, absolutely. Sure, sure. So this is actually part of what prompted me to, um, you know, to quit was to, to kind of pursue like, well, how, how could I do something with nonviolent communication? I'm still exploring that. Um, but it's interesting to me, you know, I, at the, the time, one of my ideas was like, maybe I could write something called nonviolent communication for programmers. The title kind of makes me laugh because when you think about, you know, uh, some of the, you know, maybe not friendly conversations that you see online, like on Twitter or like um, um, from Linus Torvalds or, you know, other folks uh, online, it's very easy, you know, we collaborate a lot, a lot online and online it's very easy to be uh, not very nice to folks. Maybe you're getting there in a second, but could you define what nonviolent or, or by, by contrast, what violent communication is? Yeah, sure. So um, nonviolent communication is this kind of, uh, it's almost like a template for communicating with people like um, in conflicts. Developed by a, a man named Marshall Rosenberg, there is a book out there called Nonviolent Communication, uh, which really explains it very well. So the idea behind nonviolent communication is that uh, when you find yourself communicating to someone by um, you know, perhaps labeling them or like, uh, you know, blaming them in various ways, right? So you say like, uh, you know, if you, like for a child, you think, oh, you know, like you're, you didn't clean your room, you're so lazy, right? Um, what the book uh, talks about is just, you know, taking a step back and saying like, okay, what's actually happening happening here, right? And so, you know, saying like, oh, you didn't clean your room, you're lazy. That would be an example of uh, violent communication, right? You're kind of reducing, the way I think about it is that you're reducing a human being to an object by perhaps trying to coerce them through guilt or just through aggression to do something different, you know, um, for, because you want them to. So the idea behind nonviolent communication is like we, the way that, the reason why we talk this way is in part um, because we're not clear about what it is that we actually need you know, what our own personal needs are, and we're not clear about what our feelings are, right? So in these moments when you, uh, you know, speak to people in such a way, right, it's like, oh, God, like, how could you push that release? You know, we lost, you know, 10,000 orders, you're an idiot. You know, when we talk to people like this, a, a much more effective way to talk to people, uh, you know, is to identify, like, what is your need, right? So like in the example of the cleanliness, like, I have a need for a clean house, you know, I feel like when you don't uh, clean, like I would like you to, I feel like you don't respect me, right? So maybe the need actually there is uh, for respect, right? And then, you know, say like it's in the nonviolent communication process, you make a specific request, you know, can you please clean your room now or something like that, right? Or can you please at least, you know, say that you hear me, understand what I'm saying? What's What's interesting about this to me, like this process of, you know, identifying, saying like, you know, this event happened, you know, like you didn't clean your room. I feel X about it, right? Uh, I feel upset or I feel sad. I feel angry because what, you know, what X need wasn't met, right? My need for, for beauty in my home, right? Or my need to feel like my child uh, listens to me and respects me, right? This process of, of saying these things and making a request, you know, can you do this to help me meet my need is so different from saying like, you didn't clean your room, you're lazy, right? Um, in in a couple a couple ways. One is that you're actually I find that like actually trying to understand like what is your need in that moment is is it's complete. It's incredibly powerful and liberating, right? Now you understand like what's actually going on inside you. You know, you don't have to. You understand like oh, this is why these emotions arise. You don't have to. To, to just react, right? And you understand, like, instead of feeling like someone else has this power over you, right? They're doing things and, like, now you, like, you feel bad and want to act out on it, right? You understand, like, oh, wait a minute. Okay, like, I have these needs, right? And I can work in, in uh, a kind and, and loving way with this other person to get these needs met. And we don't have to argue at each other 
you know, the, the premise, one, the, one of the premises of nonviolent communication is that there are no conflicting needs. Perhaps there are conflicting strategies for meeting those needs, right? But through this uh, process of you know, conversation and, and sharing you know, your needs with each other, then you can come up with like some kind of strategy that works for both people, you know, for, or for all people, like where their needs get met. And to me, it's, you know, I've thought about this in, in relation to, you know, work life and programming life or, you know, collaborating with other people, right, or collaborating with customers, you know. And um, I don't know, I just, I think that this, this process, I think it's, what you end up doing is getting in touch with yourself, you know, and what's, what's actually going on for you in a way that I think that a lot of times, you know, most people, myself included, they don't really do. And when you do that, I, I think just like life becomes a whole lot easier and the amount of conflict that you have in your life gets reduced immensely. So um, I, I don't know, I, I just, I care very much about it because I feel like there's definitely like there's so many you know, facets of, of life these days, which I have enormous amount of conflict in them, um, just on a, on a larger, you know, beyond programming, but on a larger you know, political scale. I find this really fascinating. I mean, I think um, uh, to the extent that I've enjoyed success in consulting, I feel like it's really fallen out of, um, I mean, yes, to technical ability, right? Like I've, I've worked hard to, to make sure that my technical ability is up to the level that it needs to be. But, but to the extent that I've been successful in consulting, um, I, I feel that to a very large degree, it's about understanding that software is fundamentally about people, yeah. like in a really, really deep way. And but the thing that your your comments make me think of is that I've always approached that uh, the tool that I've used is try to understand it from the other side, typically the customer, right? Like what do they what do they want? Mm -hmm. uh, and it's really interesting to hear you discuss nonviolent communication and the emphasis, um, at least in part, on understanding what I want yeah. <laughs> or, or what we want or, you know, from the other side. And, and it sounds really complimentary. Um, I'm going to have to really think hard about how to put that into, how to put that into practice. And I, I should add the book that you mentioned, uh, which I, I guess is titled Nonviolent Communication, easy enough to remember, um, on my reading list and, and move it up towards the top. That's very, very interesting. Cool. Yeah. Glad I piqued your interest. It's, uh... yeah, for sure. <laughs> it's a great book. Well, I feel like we could probably do an entire show about uh, about that topic and about how it relates to um, software, at least. Um, uh, but uh, maybe we will leave that for your next appearance on the Cognicast. Um, unless unless you had anything else you wanted to talk about today, it, it seems like a great place to, to wrap it up and say until next time. Oh, no, no. Thanks for giving me the, the chance to talk about it. And uh, definitely, it'd be awesome to come on again. We can chat about it some more. Yeah, for sure. Uh, okay, great. Well, so, so like I said, seems like a great place to put a bookmark in this conversation and uh, and get it out to people and uh, and 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 pick it up again some other time. But uh, I do have one more question for you, as we always do, uh, which is and and as so frequently happens, you have already imparted a great deal of advice, but we still uh, excellent advice, but I might add. Uh, but we do, of course, always ask people to end the show, guests end the show by um, providing. A little more, more advice or sharing advice, I should say, because, you know, it, this might be advice that you've received um, or advice you've given or like to give or, or possibly just advice you've overheard. But uh, hopefully you've had a chance to think of, since I warned you about this as well, a piece of advice you'd like to share with our audience. Yeah, sure. So my advice for the audience is to um, read a book. It's an excellent book, and it's called A Mind for Numbers, and it's by a woman who uh, she thought that she like was terrible at math, just would suck at engineering, and ended up becoming a, I think a professor of engineering. And so uh, she, she describes like new things that uh, researchers have learned about how people learn. And if you want to learn a new programming language or anything technical, or really I think nearly anything, um, at least when it comes to like knowledge things. Um, this book is uh, a mind for numbers is great. It's full of extremely useful advice about how to effectively, effectively learn, right? Don't like waste your time, um, doing things that, uh, really don't, don't help you. Like a lot of times people do things like, uh, reread something that they've read and say like, okay, I get this now. Um, uh, not the best way to approach learning. The book has more. Excellent. It's called A Mind for Numbers. 
Very, very cool. I think anything that makes us better at learning uh, winds up making us better at everything, and not only better at everything, but better at getting better. So that's uh, high leverage advice. Well, Daniel, thank you so very much for coming on today. I really enjoyed our conversation, as I have every time that we've had a chance to talk. Um, it was really nice to be able to sit down with you today for longer than we had, say, at um, uh, ClosureCon. I think it was the last time I saw you. Yeah. So uh, thanks a ton for coming on. Really, really fascinating stuff. Uh, your book looks great. Like I said, very much want to read it. And I also particularly enjoyed the conversation at the end about uh, nonviolent communication. So thank you many times over for all those things. Oh, well, thanks for having me. It's just such a pleasure. And I, I enjoyed it, too. It's really great. So thank you. All right. Well, we will close it down there. Thanks to Daniel again. And thanks to everyone for listening. This has been the Cognicast. You have been listening to the Cognicast. The Cognicast is a production of Cognitech Inc., whom you can find on the web at Cognitech.com and on Twitter at Cognitech. You can subscribe to the Cognicast, listen to past episodes, and view cover art and show notes at our home on the web, Cognitech.com slash podcast. You can contact us by tweeting at Cognicast or by emailing us at podcast at Cognitech.com. Our guest today was Daniel Higginbotham on Twitter at nonrecursive. N-O-N-R-E-C-U-R-S-I-V-E. Episode cover art is by Michael Parento. Audio production by Russ Olson and Damian Mack. The Cognicast is produced by Kim Foster. Our theme music is Thumbs Up for Rock and Roll by Kill the Noise with Feed Me. I'm your host, Craig Andera. Thanks for listening. 